Welcome to another episode of Appalachian Shine, the official podcast for the Foundation for Appalachian Advancement. I'm J.C. Swingruber, and today we're going to be getting into a really, really interesting legend here in central Appalachia that is older than the country itself. And I'm honored to be joined by Robert Prather, who is the author of a book called The Strange Case of Jonathan Swift and the Real Long John Silver, and No by Jonathan Swift. I'm not talking about Gulliver's Travels. We're talking about an Appalachian legend that is older than the country itself, a real-life national treasure of sorts. Would you say so, Robert? I'd say you hit the nail on the head. Um, Now, National Treasure is one of my favorite movies, and I just learned about this legend a few years ago from a friend of mine who was just enthralled with it, who was a former board member here at the Foundation, James Hibbets, and unfortunately he passed, but he was so passionate about this legend, and then you met him, and then passed the, a book on to me, this this book to take a look at. Um, there's a lot of folks that may not know anything about the legend of Jonathan Swift and the Swift Silver Mine here in Appalachia. Uh, jump into the beginning and tell us a little bit about what this is. Well, it's, uh, of course, my book is kind of a complicated thing, but in short, the Swift legend uh, is about a gentleman named John or Jonathan Swift uh, he's even sometimes referred to as William in legend. Uh, so up to the point of just recently here, they really didn't know who Jonathan Swift or the man Swift was. Um, but he was reputed to have come from Alexandria, Virginia, where he and a group of men got together and they came to the wilderness of Kentucky and mined silver and in some circumstances, uh, some aspects of the legend, it was gold. Uh, That's where part of the mystery of the legend begins because Kentucky, uh, present day, everybody realizes Kentucky's just not a a state that has commercial quantities of silver and gold to be mined. Uh, So that's uh, that's part of the mystery of the Swift legend. Where did Swift get all this treasure uh, that and, and legend was stated to have come from Kentucky itself, was mined in Kentucky. But we pretty much know that wasn't the case. Uh, now, if you talk to the geologists of the state, they'll tell you that it just doesn't exist in Kentucky in commercial quantities. And uh, other parts of the legend is that they uh, brought their treasure into Kentucky for safeguarding it and stowed it away in what they refer to as a great cave. And uh, in some uh, parts of the legend, it's referred to as the great cavern of the Shawnee, is where they stowed up their their great treasure. Um, A lot of different uh, various stories that went along with the legend. Uh, Part of them was that Swift uh, and his men frequented the Spanish main and, and Looted, did some looting and stuff down there and brought their treasure back and stowed it in Kentucky's caves. Uh, which probably makes more sense than the other part where they came into the state and mined yeah. their precious metals. Um, and then, of course, there's the part about Swift uh, being a, a murderer where he, uh, he let uh, his, his greed get the best of him. Uh, regarding this great cave of treasure and he ended up murdering some of his people just to keep the the location of the of the cave a secret where yeah. only he would know where it was and that's and that's part of the fun part of the legend um, 
well, this, is that it was lost, lost to the ages. And well, our country declared its independence in 1776, so this predates that. What years um, would Swift have, I guess, put silver in in these caves, or would, would this legend have began? You're, you're right. If when you say predate the, the revolution predates. Swift's activities mm -hmm. in Kentucky and throughout Appalachia. His, uh, I believe his involvement, uh, according to my research, probably began in uh, around 1784, 1785, somewhere within a, just a few years there. This was like probably right before Lord Dunmore's War in part of the region. And that was the, the battles that led up to the Revolutionary War. Um, well, no. This this was after this was after the revolution had been had ended, or right on the tail end of the revolution, is when Swift uh, probably became involved. Of course, you hate to give the ending away at the beginning of our story here, but uh, my belief is that Swift wasn't a, necessarily a bloodthirsty pirate like he was portrayed in legend. Well, who was Swift? But he was a. a a great patriot, um, which we'll get to a little later. Uh, well, Jonathan Swift came from, originated from uh, Milton, Massachusetts. His father's name was Samuel Swift, and he was uh, he was a law partner or practiced law with John Adams, our second president, first vice president. And uh, later in life, John Adams actually appointed Jonathan uh, to some uh, prestigious uh, political positions. He was consul to several foreign nations uh, when he was later in Alexandria, Virginia. But uh, going back to Samuel, he was a very interesting guy. As I said, he practiced law with John Adams. John Adams wrote a letter uh, stating that uh, Samuel Swift should be, the name, his name should be commemorated. And uh, in other words, I, he was referring to actually setting up a holiday for Samuel Swift just to commemorate his deeds that he did and what he did to, uh, or to create the, excuse me, the American Revolution. And... Uh, during that time period, Samuel was uh, captured by the uh, the Redcoats. They uh, he was such a fiery patriot. As a matter of fact, he was uh, one of the patriots that was uh, on the participated in the Boston Tea Party as one of the quote Mohawk Indians. Oh wow! Okay. And uh, so he was a very very uh, important revolutionary figure for the United States, and Jonathan Swift was his son. Um, during that time period, during the revolution, uh, Samuel was arrested for some of the things that he did, and one of the things was dumping tea into the Boston Harbor. And he was placed under house arrest, and just shortly after that, uh, he died. And we learned through letters that his wife wrote that he was badly mistreated. And this was the, the reason for his death. And she actually referred to it as, as a murder. She said, in reality, he was murdered. So Jonathan would have had no love whatsoever for the, for the Redcoats. Yeah. 
for the English. And so he was probably just waiting for his time to, to do something to pay them back. And, uh, and I think that's where Jonathan Swift really comes into the story of, of his legend, which pertains to the treasure and all that. So some that would say he was just a bloodthirsty pirate, he really kind of rubbed elbows with a lot of people in high society in America, a lot of fellow patriots, so that he was more, would you say, more of a blue blood? Oh, you could call him that, yeah. sure. Yeah, that's a good way to describe him. Uh, but as I said there, his father uh, rubbed elbows with, with John Adams and Sam Adams. Um, so that, that got him off to a pretty remarkable start. And then later on, uh, when Jonathan moved to Alexandria, Virginia, around 18, or I'm sorry, uh, 1783 or 4, um, he ended up marrying a girl by the name of Nancy uh, Roberto, or Roberto, some people refer to. And she was the daughter of uh, Brigadier General Daniel Roberto, who was one of George Washington's Brigadier Generals. And so Swift marries her. And so, uh, and Brigadier General Roberto uh, was one of the uh, founders of this nation in that he signed uh, the Articles of Confederation uh, during the Revolutionary time. And so that, that qualifies him to be a, a founding father of this nation, one of them. And, um, Anyway, through when, when Swift became interested, this is just a little side note, I guess you'd say, when, when he became interested in Nancy, uh, General Roberto didn't like Jonathan for some reason, and he opposed the marriage. And, uh, but Jonathan and Anne slipped off one night and, and got married. From that, we know that Jonathan was by no means a coward because General Roberto was an extremely powerful man. Uh, and he was a very big guy too. He was one. He was probably six five, somewhere along in there. And for that time period, that that was a big man. And he was he was a big hefty guy too. So we we know that Jonathan was no coward when he and Nancy eloped. I wanted to ask you another thing that was uh, that was in the book. Um, can you explain a little bit about what the relationship is between Jonathan Swift and George Washington? Sure can. Um, you know, we just talked about Nancy Swift. And one of the things that stayed in the Swift family for over a hundred years was the dress that she had when she danced with George Washington at his inaugural event uh, when he was first elected president. Our first president, uh, Jonathan Swift's wife, danced with him at the inauguration. So the Swifts, it gives you a good indication of the relationship between the Swifts and the Washingtons, and that they were invited to the inauguration. And Nancy actually got to dance with President Washington. That dress stayed in the family for over, well over 100 years. What, what happened to it, I'm not just sure, but it did get outside the family. And um, there are several letters written from uh, between Washington and Jonathan Swift on some land dealings. Um, and then we know that Jonathan visited uh, Mount Vernon on several occasions and spent the night, had breakfast with Washington's and 
And so we, we, uh, we formed a picture and we know that Washington and Swift were pretty close friends. Uh, and of course it goes back to John Adams also, you know, they, they have this connection right from the beginning to some founding fathers. George Washington, uh, we know that Washington didn't give away a lot of his treasures. But one of the things that he gave away was actually a, a Charles Wilson Peale painting. And of course, Peale himself is a great historical figure in the United States. And uh, it was, it, the picture is called uh, Washington at Princeton, which was painted shortly after the Battle of Princeton. And George Washington pulled that out of his stock and gave it to his friend, Jonathan Swift. Pretty rare thing to do, to give a national treasure like that away. Absolutely. And that, that portrait today is, uh, can be found in the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art. Okay. Well, it's, it's present day called Newfields. So you were talking about the portrait of Washington? That's right, which is at Newfields in Indianapolis. Um, on the frame of the, uh, the portrait, uh, at the base of the frame is a little plaque that says, uh, presented to my friend, Jonathan Swift by George Washington. That's a powerful statement and to see this portrait in real life. It's a, it's a big portrait. Um, it, it's very impressive and it tells a great story about who Jonathan Swift really was and the real part that he played during the revolution and the setting up of this nation. And it's, it's my belief that he actually, you, the uh, story that you had mentioned earlier, the, the movie uh, National Treasure, mm -hmm. um, the part that he played in that. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating kind of going through this book, and, and we'll get into some of the aspects here in a little bit, uh, about the uh, the research that you put into this to kind of this is like I was saying putting a piece of a puzzle together one little piece at a time that a lot of people really don't really know about the legend of Jonathan Swift now in some circles there are people that are just wildly fascinated with it have been treasure hunting for years um, but a lot of people don't realize that yeah this was a a real human being and you're by doing this you're putting laying the case at one he had no love for the British uh, two he and his family know very powerful people in this country that have determined the future and you know the the, the direction of the country at the time and and the founders um now the next thing i wanted to kind of bring about is just i wanted to ask was that he in your book you show that he is a massive landowner and that takes a lot of wealth to generate that but he knew a lot of powerful people how did he become an owner of so much land and what we know as Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky today, and probably part was there probably some in southwestern Virginia too. I did not find where he owned land in southwest Virginia. Uh, he did own some land in Virginia. Um, I found where he owned some land, which is in present day West Virginia. Mm -hmm. um, he, he owned several tracts of land up around where he lived, uh, up in the Alexandria area. His vast land holdings were in Kentucky, and uh, that began uh, around 1791, was the first property that he purchased in Kentucky. It was a 20,718 and three quarters 
acres land. Wow. Tract. That was the first one in, that he purchased. And then also in 1791, he purchased another 5,000 acre tract. Uh, both of these tracts of land were originated a, a, as in what was once old Jefferson County in Kentucky, which dwindled down to uh, Hardin County. And at the time he purchased it, they were filed in Hardin County in the records, deed books. But he purchased a great deal of other land. Uh, he, he purchased at least another 20,000 acres uh, out in the western part of Kentucky. That was uh, in several tracts of land, probably oh, seven or eight different tracts of land that he owned out in western Kentucky. And then uh, I got lucky and found, uh, as a matter of fact, I looked for this particular tract for a great long time. And uh, finally came about it just by asking some more questions and found it in the burnt files at the Fayette uh, County Clerk's Office, uh, which I didn't know the burnt files even existed. Well, what is a burnt file? Well, it, uh, some of the courthouses in Kentucky and various places were burnt during the Civil War. Oh, okay. And so this was one of the, one of the cases where that happened. Uh, but they took some of the old books and they were still able to use the deeds and they had them transcribed yeah. and put in these burnt files. But uh, this tract of land was right in the heart of where the legend is so strong out in eastern Kentucky. Uh, a tract of land, or there's actually two tracts of land that uh, uh, totaled 10,000 acres uh, was right on uh, the waters of the Big Sandy River and the Levisa River. Um, and then there, there was another uh, huge tract of land. It was his biggest tract of land. And he was granted this land by the state of Virginia in 17, 1797. And it was 100,000 acres. <clears throat> and the... Wow. Uh, the city of Pikesville today, according to the old uh, description of the land, uh, appears to sit upon land once owned by Jonathan Swift, Pikeville. Of course, 100,000 acres covers a lot of territory. Yeah, that's, that's a big chunk of land. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there was a number of things that matched up when I found those areas up there. Of course, one, like I said, the, uh, the one property was on the Levisa River and the Big Sandy, and that ties in with legend that Swift came out in the eastern part of Kentucky, and uh, where he and his men would meet at the Big Sandy and divide up and go different places. <clears throat> and then uh, the hundred thousand acre track uh, to the south of it, uh, there was another hundred thousand acre track owned by a gentleman by the name of Michael Montgomery. And Montgomery also owned another tract of land on the uh, north side, on both the south and north side. Uh, the north side tract contained 142,000 acres. So between Swift and Montgomery, from Pine Mountain clear up to about Paintsville, uh, they owned together around 350,000 wow. acres of land. That is a huge swath. And, I, and it's, I can see the difficulty of anyone trying to narrow down where they're going to find a cave full of silver. Um, now, during those times, I, I would imagine it was probably 
really dangerous for him to travel these lands because he had Shawnee and uh, Cherokee that probably were none too pleased to see him coming through there. What what would that have been like for him? Oh, well, all you have to do is read your history books and know that it was. You're exactly right. It was dangerous to travel in the wilderness at that time. Uh, the native population was not friendly toward Swift and his men, uh, and there's uh, stories about that concerning the legend and, and the uh, native Indians. Um, and of course there was other things, bear and mountain lions and things like that that they had to be aware of. Oh, just all manner of snakes? snakes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it was. It was very dangerous. And, uh, but, but they had a job to do, and, and they did it. They did their job. Now, um, in your book, you talk about there's a connection with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, uh, the book Treasure Island, because it, it, that obviously comes to mind when, when you're reading about the legend of Jonathan Swift or watching any of the videos. Uh, how, did, how did you build that connection there? You know, uh, once you learn a little bit about Jonathan Swift, uh, it doesn't take long. You start, if you're familiar with Treasure Island, if you've read Stevenson's book on Long John Silver, then you'll start seeing all these similarities uh, between the story of Swift and uh, the fictional work of Long John Silver. Um, so it's just the similarities that originally caught my attention. And then, you know, once I got into investigating the Swift legend, I decided to go ahead. I was encouraged by a friend of mine to uh, to go ahead and, and squeeze what I could out of uh, the Stevenson and Swift possibility. And it's very interesting, some of the things that I found. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson married a lady uh, who was from in. Uh, she was from Indiana, and uh, the gentleman that uh, she was actually married at the time that Stevenson and her met, uh, they met in Grez, France. Uh, it was an art colony. He was there for his health, and she was there for because she was having marital problems. She was married to a gentleman by the name of Sam Osborne, and he was from Louisville, Kentucky. So here we have a gentleman that's from Scotland, Robert Louis Stevenson, who's uh, starting to have relationship with a lady from Indiana who was married to a gentleman from Kentucky. Now, Sam Osborne was a pretty interesting guy, too. Uh, he was, of course, the Kentucky Osbournes and also uh, <clears throat> the Osbournes of Virginia around Scott County. Um, so, and, and even in the Pike County area, uh, <clears throat> there's some, I think it's in Pike County, uh, or a little town called Osborne, which is on the Swift property, the 100,000-acre tract. Okay. And so the Osbournes kind of tie into Swift anyway, but this Sam Osborne, uh, with all his Kentucky connections and the fact that his, some of his family came from where the Swift uh, company was doing most of their work in eastern Kentucky, uh, Sam and Fanny... Uh, which was his wife, and she's the one that married Robert Louis Stevenson, moved from Kentucky um, and went west. Uh, on their way out there, they stopped in Nevada, where Sam purchased a silver mine. Okay. <laughs> so he was interested in that type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
and during the they later moved to uh, California. Stevenson came to the United States uh, to marry Fanny. And he, he came and went, traveled all the way across the states to California where they married. They spent their honeymoon in a, a desolate silver mine camp called uh, Silverado. And Stevenson later wrote a book called The Silverado Squatters. But anyway, uh, long story short, just shortly after they married, Stevenson wrote Treasure Island. Uh, he, he wrote The Sea Cook and later renamed it Treasure Island. With all these different similarities to John Swift in it. So was that a coincidence or was it not? You know, are the elements of Treasure Island that appear to be taken out of a, a volume of Jonathan Swift's journal, you know, is that a coincidence? Is it a coincidence that he wrote Treasure Island directly after marrying Fanny Osborne? So, you know, there's, there's some speculation there, of course, but uh, it, it, to me, it looks very likely. So the thing about your book that I thought was absolutely fascinating is like, you're telling this great story, but inside the story, there's so much forgotten history that is so informative and just, I don't know, for any history buff, it's kind of, you know, a moment of glee when you read things like you know, what you're saying about the connection between that, you know, Jonathan Swift and Treasure Island. These are nuggets of history that people either did not know or have long forgotten. That I'm glad you bring these things back up. Now, in in part two of the interview, we'll we'll be back talking a little bit more. But I want to in part two, I wanted to kind of get into um, a little bit about Swift's journal. If you could kind of run through a little bit of that. And then uh, I want to talk a little bit about how you pieced all this together, because this was a lifelong passion for you. This wasn't just you know, a topic that garnered your interest. You decided to write a book. This is something that you had grabbed onto a long time ago, and this has been a life's work, actually. And the, the amount of travel you put in, I want to kind of get into a little bit of that. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, your experience being on the History Channel with America's Book of Secrets and... Uh, not long ago, you were on KET with Tim Farmer uh, on, a, on a special specifically about this. And uh, I'm hoping we'll, we'll see that come, get, get more replay soon um, and actually be on their YouTube page. It'd be kind of nice. Uh, I'd love to share that. But we'll get into that in part two uh, with Robert Prather. The Strange Case of Jonathan Swift and the Real Long John Silver. Robert, people can get this at Amazon.com. That's correct. It should be available to Amazon can also be uh, obtained through my publisher's website, uh, acclaimpress.com. This is an amazing book cover, too. It's an award-winning book cover. That, uh, yeah, we won a silver addy with that cover. So, folks, uh, in, in the meantime, between now and then uh, part two of this interview that will that we'll air, um, jump on Amazon or, or, or wherever you want. Pick up the book. This book is an adventure in and of itself. Um, highly recommended. Thanks, Robert. We'll be back with part two, and thank you guys for tuning in to this episode of Appalachian Shine. Until next time, we'll see you on down the road.